please stand for a reading of God's word. This morning I'm reading in two different passages. Both have to do with the church in Ephesus. The first is 1 Timothy 3, and then I'll be reading in Ephesians chapter 4. 1 Timothy 3, beginning in verse 1. Paul writes, the saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach. The husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach. Not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or may be puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders, that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. Deacons, likewise, must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of faith with a clear conscience, and let them also be tested first. Let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Their wives, likewise, must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their households well. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. Now Ephesians 4, beginning in verse 11. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. Until we all attain to the unity of faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ." from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. In 1979, Gallup ran a poll to gauge the trust that Americans had in public institutions. And every year since then, they have run that same poll surveying Americans to see how much we trust the institutions that have authority over us. Institutions like government, police, military, banks, the school system, the media, and big business. Do you want to guess how we're doing? If you look at this poll each and every year, it's a downward trajectory showing an eroding of public trust in institutions. So much so that last year, we hit an all-time low. Americans simply don't trust our institutions anymore. Why is that? Well, I think it's because so many of them have let us down. They've disappointed us. We've lost confidence in them. They've even hurt us. They've wounded us in some ways. And that has left us cynical and jaded. And I wish it weren't true, but you could say the same thing about the American church. 
Do you trust the church? With all of the distrust that you might have of other institutions and organizations, do you trust the church? Do you trust the people God has called to lead the church? A couple years ago, Christianity Today published a podcast that went viral almost overnight. Immediately had 2.5 million downloads. Became the number one religious podcast on Apple. Top three podcasts in any category. It was called The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill. Some of you may have listened to it. It tells a tragic story of a church in Seattle that was founded by a pastor named Mark Driscoll. And it chronicles in great detail this sad and tragic story of what happens when ego and pride and unhealthy leadership do great damage to the church. And I have to admit that it was a hard listen for me. Not simply because it was painful to listen to, and it was, but because it hit too close to home. You see, because before I became a pastor in the Presbyterian Church in America, I was part of a network of churches called Acts 29, the very same network of churches that Mars Hill belonged to, the very same network of churches that Mark Driscoll led. I have worshiped at Mars Hill. I've been to ministry conferences at Mars Hill. I've been to pastors' gatherings in Mark Driscoll's backyard. I saw firsthand just how dangerous it is when there is a culture of unhealthy leadership in the church. And I saw that not only in others, but I was beginning to see it in myself. And in many ways, that is why I'm Presbyterian today. Not because we are perfect, because we're not. But because of the way that we as Presbyterians describe the church and how she is to be organized. And more importantly, because of the way we envision the church to be. What is the church? The church is not an institution. It's not a building. It's not an organization. It's not even a ministry organization. It's not a philanthropy. It's not a social club. It's not even a thing we go to. The church is a people. A counter-cultural community in Christ Jesus redeemed by his death and resurrection to fulfill the great commission and bring the kingdom of God here and now. And since the beginning of the church, God has called elders to shepherd and deacons to serve and every Christian to build up the body of Christ in love. And so this morning, I want us to look at how every one of us has a role to play in that mission. And I want to begin with the office of elder. I want you to look with me at 1 Timothy 3, verse 1. Paul tells us that the saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. 
Now, before we get into it, I just want to say a couple things about the context of what Paul is writing. He's writing a letter, a pastoral letter, to a young pastor named Timothy who's been called to lead the church in Ephesus. And he's writing these words to help Timothy deal with all of the complexities of church leadership and how church is supposed to function. And so he says, this saying is trustworthy. In other words, this, this is going to be true, and I'm going to say you can trust it. He says, if anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Now, that word overseer comes from the Greek word episkopos. It's where we get the word bishop. It's the same word that's used throughout the New Testament to describe the office of elder. An elder or a, an overseer. It's the language that Peter uses to describe the way Jesus shepherds and leads us as his people. 1 Peter 2, 25, Peter says, You were straying like sheep, but you've now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. It's that same word, episkopos, that Jesus is the chief shepherd. He is the lead elder. He is the true overseer. He's the head of the church. It's also the word that the apostle Paul uses, again, in addressing the church in Ephesus in Acts 20, 28. Paul here is speaking to the Ephesian elders for the last time before he's to leave them forever. And this is what he says. He says, pay careful attention to yourselves, elders, and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, same word, to care for the church of God which he obtained with his own blood. I think Paul's words here in Acts are very helpful because they tell us a lot about what it means for an elder to be the overseer of the church. The first thing it tells us is that it is God who calls an elder. This is not a man-made office of power. This is a work of the Holy Spirit and a spiritual calling. I want you to listen again to what Paul says to the Ephesian elders. He says, the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. This is why I love Ben's answer so much, that he had first had to see, was the Lord calling him to serve as an elder in his church? Because this is not a man-made position. This is a spiritual calling set apart by Jesus himself. The second thing we see in what Paul says here is that the church belongs to Jesus. This is his church. Paul even says that he paid for it with his own blood. Have any of you shed blood for your church? Jesus bought us with a price. And that means Park City's Presbyterian Church, as a local expression of his church, belongs to Jesus. It doesn't belong to me. It doesn't belong to Mark. It doesn't belong to Tommy. It doesn't even belong to our session. This is Christ's church. And he alone is the head, the foundation, the cornerstone. But the last thing I think we see in what Paul says here in the book of Acts is that we see that First and foremost, the call of an elder or overseer of the church is to be a shepherd. He says, pay attention to the flock. Because as his people, we are sheep. And we need shepherds to lead us back to Jesus each and every day. What that means is that in the same way that the church is not an organization or an institution, Elders are not called to be a board of directors. 
Elders are called to be a community of shepherds, called by Jesus himself to steward the people, the flock, the sheep that he has entrusted to us. In our denomination, the Presbyterian Church in America, our book of church order puts it this way, that the role of an elder is one of spiritual oversight, instruction, evangelism, discipleship, prayer, and care. We are called to shepherd the flock because Jesus is the chief shepherd. And in an elder's shepherding of the flock, we should see something of Jesus. So how did Jesus shepherd the flock? He tells us in the Gospel of John, where in John 10, verse 11, Jesus said, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. So what is the role of an elder? The role of an elder is to die. The role of an elder is to lay down his life for the sheep, to shepherd sacrificially because that is what Jesus has done for us. And so as Paul talks about the role of an elder in 1 Timothy 3, he then moves to a different role, an important role. It's the role of deacon. The second thing I want you to know, just as elders are called to shepherd, deacons are called to serve. I want you to look with me, 1 Timothy 3, verse 8. Deacons likewise must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. The word deacon here is a transliteration of the Greek word diakonos. Transliteration in that it's not simply a translation, but it's an English representation of a Greek word. And what's interesting about this word is it's used 29 times in the New Testament, but only a few times is it used to describe an office or a role. Every other time it's used more generally just to describe ministry or service of others. So a deacon is called to serve. And we see this word used again in the book of Acts. We're giving the, the description of the very first deacons who were called, Acts chapter 6. In Acts 6, we're told that the church had grown so much that the ministry had become too much for the apostles to handle on their own. And so they set aside seven men to serve the tables, in other, in other words, to serve widows and the needy, so that they could do the work of prayer and ministry of the word. What we see is two roles being distinguished for very specific purposes and reasons. Two offices, the role of elder to minister the word and to pray, and the role of deacons to serve the needy among the body. And that is what a deacon is. A deacon is called to be a servant, to serve the needy among us. Again, the book of church order, I think, is helpful, saying that the role of deacon is one of sympathy and service, Addressing others in time of need, serving those who are sick and the friendless, and any who may be in distress. All in the example of Jesus, who not only is our good shepherd, but is the true servant. The one whom Paul said in Philippians 2, took the form of a servant to the point of death, even death on a cross. So what is an, a, a deacon called to do? Well, just like an elder, a deacon like Jesus is called to die, to lay his life down for the flock, to serve them, 
and to care for any who are in need. As you hear those roles described, you might be asking, well, who can do those things? Well, the answer is none of us apart from Jesus. But this is why the Apostle Paul goes on after he describes these roles to talk about their qualifications. Who is qualified to serve as an elder or deacon? And we're given a somewhat similar list with a few differences for each. I want you to go back to verse 3. Again, building off of this idea in verse 2 that an elder and overseer must be above reproach and the husband of one wife and sober-minded and self-controlled and respectable. He goes on and on talking about all of the different things that an elder is supposed to embody. And I just want to mention a few of them. And as I do, I want you to see them in the list that Paul gives. He says an elder should be above reproach, a husband of one wife, self-controlled, respectable, holy, disciplined, hospitable, well thought of by outsiders, not a drunken or violent, not arrogant or quarrelsome, not greedy or a lover of money. His children will be faithful and submissive. He must not be a recent convert. He must hold firm to the word and able to teach. We see a similar list given later in 1 Timothy 3, 9 for deacons, that they must hold the mystery of faith with a clear conscience, that they must be tested first and serve as deacons if they prove blameless. These lists are exhaustive. And I think we can tell a couple things about what it means to be an elder or a deacon by them. The first thing I want you to see is that God is interested in the heart. The qualifications of elder and deacon are not about human competency. They're about gospel character. And none of these things are possible apart from the powerful and transforming grace of Jesus Christ. And so an elder or deacon is not called to be perfect. They're called to be dependent, called to follow Jesus, to know what it looks like to be repentant, to be changed and shaped and formed by the gospel each and every day, to do what Paul said when he said, follow me as I follow Christ. In many ways, elders and deacons are called to be the lead repenters and the lead abiders, the ones who know just how desperate we are for the saving work of Jesus. I think the other thing that this list tells me is that there is a huge difference in the kinds of things that we expect from leaders and what God wants of them. In a world where we're used to human institutions, we think of a certain kind of values and characteristics that God doesn't seem to be interested. It reminds me of something that New York Times columnist David Brooks said a few years ago. He talked about the difference between resume virtues and eulogy virtues. Resume virtues are the kinds of things you put on your resume, your accomplishments, your skills, the things that you think you are good at. But eulogy virtues are the things that will be read at your funeral. Things about the heart, the kind of person you are. These lists, to borrow from this distinction, are eulogy virtues. And they're impossible apart from Jesus. I wonder as you hear these lists and 
You hear the kind of men that God is calling to be officers in the church, to serve as elders or deacons. Some of you might be asking this morning, well, what about the women? It's a fair question. It's a fair question, not only because of our cultural moment, but I think it's a fair question because so many men in the history of the church have done abuse in the name of being an elder or a deacon. And if you've experienced that yourself this morning, first I wanna say I'm sorry. And then second, just wanna spend a minute or two talking about what Paul is saying here about elder and deacon, what that means for the role of women. There's a few responses to that. I guess the question would be, what is Paul saying by saying that elders and deacons are to be men? We see that in this passage where he calls them to be husband of one wife. 1 Timothy 3, building off of 1 Timothy 2, which is all about the difference in the roles of men and women in the church. And you say, so what are we to do with that? If Paul says that elders and deacons are to be men, and if that's our practice, which it is here at PCPC, then what are we saying as a church? Are we saying that somehow men are more important and women are lesser? No. We deeply believe in the value, dignity, and worth of every woman. So what do we do with this? Well, one response is the egalitarian position. It says that women and men have equal worth and dignity and value, and therefore they should have equal roles. And they come to a passage like 1 Timothy 3, and they say, well, I think perhaps things could be interchangeable here. That really what Paul means is spouse of one spouse. Or you could maybe interchange husband and wife, and it could be wife of one husband. But I think what Paul is saying in the original Greek doesn't allow us to do that. And so what do we do? Well, an opposite response would be called patriarchy. That says men and women actually don't have equal value. That men are more important than women and therefore should have more important roles in the church. Let me offer a third way. I would argue a better way. And it's the way that we practice here at PCPC. It's called complementarianism. And it says that men and women have equal worth, dignity, and value. In fact, I would go so far to say that when you read Genesis and the creation of male and female, it is actually both of us together that bear the fullness of the image of God. And without the other, that image is incomplete. So complementarianism, in the truest sense of the word, says that men and women are equal in worth and dignity and value, but they have been given distinct differences that when they fulfill those different roles produce a fuller picture of flourishing in the body of Christ. They complement one another. And so here, though the Apostle Paul is saying elders and deacons belong to men, the Bible from beginning to end, shows us the value, worth, and importance of women in the body of Christ. It was women who were there to first bear witness to the empty tomb. Women who first proclaimed that Christ had risen from the dead. While it's the Apostle Paul here who says that elder and deacon are called to be men, 
He says elsewhere in the book of Romans, with a long list of women by name, just how invaluable they had been to the mission of the church, and he praises them by name. In Philippians, he calls out two women, and he praises them for their partnership in the gospel. In other words, every single person in the church has a role to play, both men and women. And when we play these roles as men and women, in the fullness of how God has designed us to be, we build up the body of Christ. So that's the final thing I want you to know before we sing. I want you to know, while elders are called to shepherd and deacons are called to serve, every Christian is called to build up the church. And I want you to look with me at Ephesians 4, verse 11. As I told you, 1 Timothy is Paul writing to one of the pastors of the Ephesian church, and Ephesians is Paul writing to the church itself, and so it's a helpful partner as we try to understand the church in Ephesus and how it was organized. Notice what Paul says in Ephesians 4, verse 11. It says he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers these God-given roles to lead the church. Why? To equip the saints for the work of ministry. You want to guess what the word ministry is in the original Greek? Diakonos. In other words, God has called elders and deacons not to do the ministry, but to equip the saints for the work of ministry. Who are the saints? Everyone who is a follower of Jesus Christ. God has given us elders and deacons to lay their lives down for the flock, to shepherd and to serve so that we as the church would fulfill our mission to build up the body of Christ in love. And the metaphor that Paul uses is a body, not an institution, not an organization, but a body where Christ is the head. Not only the head as one who's in authority, but the head of a body and that he is the source of all life and wisdom and godliness. So brothers and sisters, Christ alone is the head of the church. He's called elders to shepherd, deacons to serve, He's called every one of us to build up the body in love. Because when Christ is the head, the church becomes the great apologetic in our fractured world. In a world that has lost trust in institutions, in a world that is increasingly hopeless, we place our hope in Christ alone. And we embody who he is and how the gospel changes us and the way that we fulfill our God-given roles in building up one another with the love of Christ. Let me pray. Father in heaven, we pray that we would now embody what it means to be the body, even as we sing. That as we sing this final hymn, we would consider not only you, Jesus, as the cornerstone, but as we listen to the voices singing around us, we'd be reminded that we are not alone in this. That you've given us the church that you've given us elders and deacons and that you've given us the saints around us and you've each given us a very specific role to play. Help us to seek your will and knowing what that role is and help us by your grace to embody that role so that we might bear the love of Christ to a lost and dying world. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand and let's sing together.